You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday the 18th of January and this week we'll hear from a political scientist on why Sweden's parties on the centre-right have slumped to a historic new low in opinion polls. We'll look at the impact of some big economic news stories from shrinking inflation to growing job losses. We'll dig into the attempt this week to depose Sweden's climate minister, Romina Purmaktari, in a confidence vote. And finally, we'll talk about why Swedes drink so much coffee and how the country's caffeine-fueled work culture helps explain an outcry over the decision by some municipalities to make nurses and childcare workers pay for their own coffee at work. I'm your host, Paul Omani in Stockholm, and I'm joined this week from Malmö by our regular panellists, Becky Waterton and Richard Orange. Hello. 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 Thanks for filling in for me last week, Richard. Enjoyed tuning in as a listener for once. Uh, how's your week going this time around? It's going wonderfully. It's still extremely snowy, even snowier actually, if anything, which is kind of unusual for Malmo. So I've been enjoying trudging through the snow and going for runs in the snow. And Yeah, it's very nice. Good stuff. How about you, Becky? How's your week been? Cold, but the snow looks very nice. But when it turns into this kind of slush, I'm starting to already get sick of it. Oh, yeah, it has been very cold this week here too. The thermometer outside my back door was showing minus 18 Celsius one morning. Uh, but that was nothing compared to Vitangi in the far north, which recorded minus 44.6 earlier in the month. And that was the coldest temperature of the century so far in Sweden. In a very tenuous link, the frosty weather has some parallels in politics, where the centre-right parties are experiencing the icy chill of voter disinterest. Uh, four of the eight parties in Sweden's parliament consider themselves centre-right, and an opinion poll by Dagens Nyheter and Ipsos released this week showed that together they would muster just 26% of the vote if an election were held today. And that was the lowest combined result for these four parties since this poll began in 1979. Richard, can you break this down for us? Which parties are these and how are each of them faring? Well, it's it's the moderates, the centre party, the liberals and the Christian Democrats, who are the four parties described as Borjelig in Sweden, which I can never pronounce quite right. But it's basically like like the Marxist term bourgeoisie, 
It comes from the word for a town or city dweller, like a burger. But it's come to mean middle class generally, and in politics, it means centre-right. And that's a hangover from the first half of the 20th century when politics in Sweden was all about class, with the Social Democrats and the Left Party supposedly representing the working classes and the others representing the middle and upper classes. And the Sweden Democrats, even though they're on the right, are seen as working class, so they're not Borelig. And the Green Party don't really fit anywhere at all, even though they're probably the most middle-class party of them all. So I think it doesn't really work, uh, the Boyleg description anymore. But at their peak in 1990, the four parties could muster 60% of the vote. And even in 2006, they could still form a majority on their own. And as recently as 2019, they had more than 40% of voters. So as you say, now they're down at 26%. So it's a massive fall. And I suppose the situation, it's 10 points smaller than the Social Democrats by themselves. And it's only just ahead of the Sweden Democrats. So it's a very uncomfortable situation for the, for the four parties. Possibly worse for the Christian Democrats, which is down at 3%, which is only down a bit from the election when it was 5.3%. But it, they, were, they were polling 11% only four years ago. It's also quite disappointing for the Centre Party, which is on 5%. Again, not down that much from the election when they got 6.7%, but they were polling 14% at some times in 2017 when their, their former leader, Annie Loof, was in her absolute prime. And you'd think they would be lapping up all the middle-class voters who are opposed to the other parties cooperating with the Sweden Democrats. But instead, all of those voters seem to be going to the Social Democrats. And the Moderate Party, which is the traditional party, the governing party of the centre-right, is now at 15%, down from 19% in the election. And that's lower than it got in the 2002 election, which is its most disastrous election in modern times. So again, not good. And the Liberals are at 3%, down from 4.6% in the election, which is disastrous, but actually slightly better than what they were doing a few years ago under their former leader, Yamko Sabuni. Okay, interesting stuff. Thanks. Yeah, tough times for these parties. And I spoke yesterday to political scientist Nicholas Aylott, who's an associate professor at Södertörn University and is also head of the Europe program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And I asked him why he thought these parties were performing so badly in opinion polls. I think in uh, fairness, you have to start by noting that the success that they enjoyed together as a quartet from around about 2004 was a little bit of a, a historical uh, aberration. I mean, it really was a, a, a high point in these parties' collective history. They managed to, to bring themselves together to form a very uh, compact and coherent four-party alliance, which won power in 2006 and, and kept it in 2010. Uh, and this, this unity, uh, was a great a great success, and it, it it was far better than anything they'd achieved before, and as we know now, it's better than anything that they've achieved since. Um, I think this this unity was was built on on several things. One important one was a desire, particularly among the moderates, I think, that they they just had to get back into power. They were they were losing election after election in in winnable situations, and they had to to refocus and do almost uh, whatever it took to achieve uh, power again. And one way of doing that was to signal the credibility of the, the right-wing opposition by pointing to its unity. But that unity was also predicated, it must be said, on a, on a, a set of reasonably shared ideas about uh, politics and society. And this, this was 
the age of liberalism. You know, you could some call it neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you could say that it it started to flow in the Western world from the end of the 1970s and got going in the 80s and and the 90s, and it was still flowing in the early 2000s. And uh, this was something that the main sections of all four parties could could feel pretty comfortable with, and could be the basis of their organisation. But but things have changed. The world has changed. Uh, society has changed, and the liberal solutions to society's challenges don't don't really seem anything like as appealing as they did 10 to 15 years ago. And this has caused a big, big problem for the four, for the four parties. And given that they are performing so badly, do you see any way back for all or any of them? Probably not in the form that it took, it took previously. Mm. I think that they're all suffering from the fact that the, the centre of gravity on the Swedish right is now has, has very much a conservative shade rather than a, a liberal shade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this this has been reflected by and also driven by the growth of the Sweden Democrats. And so the Sweden Democrats are now the biggest party on the right. Their, their liberal characteristic is non-existent. And so they, they've pulled uh, the rest of the, the, the Swedish right in their direction. And this has, without a doubt, made life very uncomfortable for the parties that have most roots in, in the liberal tradition. That is the, the Liberal Party itself, and and these days the Centre Party. Mm. Whether they can they can recover this is, is rather uncertain. I think that the Centre Party is in particular particular difficulty uh, because it, it's had to reinvent itself more than once in its its history. It's a party with its uh, its origins in in the countryside. It was the party of the farmers uh, originally, mm. and it managed to reinvent itself pretty spectacularly during the 90s and the early 2000s as a liberal party, almost a neoliberal party with a strong liberal economic agenda, but also a very permissive social agenda. It's very uh, charismatic leader uh, for, for many years, really took it down a cul-de-sac. It, it became more and more the anti-Sweden Democrat party mm. um, and tried to break the mould of, of block politics and create a, a system of cooperation between the, the, the middle parties in, in the spectrum that isolated the Sweden Democrats. And that just, just didn't work. And trying to reinvent itself again to move away from this, this anti-Sweden Democrat position is going to be a, a, a dreadful wrench for the party. There's no sign that its current leader um, has, has the capacity to, to do that. So I uh, the the, cent- the centre party is left with uh, in the uncomfortable position of, of being with cl- more closely allied to to left wing parties, which makes many of its members uncomfortable, and it, it's a very difficult future for that party, I think. As for the other parties on the centre right, it's looking pretty desperate for the Christian Democrats at the moment. I think uh, they have particular problems. You know, the conservative drift over the last ten years or so needn't necessarily be an existential challenge to them. They have quite a conservative historical uh, character too. But I think a current party leader probably suits, uh, is better suited to an opposition role rather than a government role. And I, uh, I think that that party is, is looking for, a, uh, probably looking for a new leader uh, mm. before the next election. Um, the, the liberals are very badly split by the conservative drift on the, the Swedish right. Half of it thinks it's it's okay. Half of them think it's it's okay. The other half is absolutely aghast. And so, when it comes to the liberals, they're in, in big trouble. And I suspect that they will be looking for some sort of technical solution to their existential challenge. I suspect 
that this party will become open to some sort of federation with the moderates and the Christian Democrats, maybe maybe some sort of joint list in the next election. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, its its future does look pretty bleak, it must be said. Mm. And the moderates? They have the challenges too. They're, they're, the party is, is split, I think, on the way it should relate to the Sweden Democrats. On one hand, there's no future in returning to a, uh, an oppositional stance towards the, the Sweden Democrats. They have to reach some sort of accommodation with the Sweden Democrats because they're such a such a big party. On the other hand, they're, they're rivals on the on the on the right now, on the conservative right, and this is going to pose a, a constant uh, challenge to the moderates. But uh, they have the prime minister's role; they dominate the government, and this gives them a, a trump card. You know that they are the the respect the, the still respectable face of the Swedish right. And even though the party might might have to get used to uh, polling at, at under twenty percent, maybe not breaching that that level in elections either. I think its future as the sort of the respectable face of of Swedish conservatism is a bit more secure than than those of its previous partners. That was Nicholas Eilot, and we'll hear a bit more from him later in the episode. Now, I didn't ask him which party's officials were most likely to be found snorting cocaine from the toilets at the Swedish Parliament. But maybe you can answer that, Richard. Well, according to a sting this week in the Aftonbladet newspaper, Sweden's parliamentary coke fiends are in the left party, the Social Democrats, the Liberals and the Sweden Democrats. And what this is about is um, the newspaper went and swabbed the toilets in all of the party's parliamentary offices, apart from the moderates and found traces of cocaine in the offices of those four. And as a proxy, the journalist then tested the toilets of the moderates' party HQ, which I don't think is the same thing, really. I think that's a bit unfair. But anyway, of the parties where cocaine was found, I think the left party's leader, Nushi Dagestar, was the most defiant because she she just went straight on the offensive and said it would be rule it or fun if Aftonbladet would test the toilets in its own offices. And, and she's probably got a point. And the other parties all pointed out that the the toilets that were tested were the guest toilets and that journalists, maintenance staff, civil servants, everyone has access to them. And that the MPs themselves actually quite often have their own private toilets in their offices. So don't, don't you, they're not even the ones using them. Anyway, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that they have found cocaine in the toilets in the Riksdag. Because when they did the same thing in the UK, they found cocaine in 11 of 12 toilets in the Houses of Parliament. So practically all of them. And as we've discussed before, cocaine use is endemic across Swedish society in all classes. And so I think, to be honest, I think it's probably just a matter of luck that no traces were found in the premises of the other parties. I mean, it could just be that the cleaners have just been round or something. I mean, I I, I personally don't think it says anything at all about the drug habits of the various parties. But, but it does say something about how common cocaine use is, is in the middle classes. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we did have uh, an episode a while back where we interviewed uh, Johan Viklian, who's written a book about um, Sweden's zero tolerance approach to drugs. But he also talked about, yeah, just as you mentioned, how endemic uh, cocaine use has become across Swedish society. Now, I just want to mention that The Local is soon going to introduce a new membership option that will include early access to an ad-free version of the podcast, as well as a weekly bonus episode featuring more interviews and analysis. We're going to have a special offer for listeners to coincide with the launch, and we'll give you more information on that in the coming weeks. 
Now, if you have any thoughts or suggestions for the podcast, you can always drop us a line at Sweden@focus at thelocal.com. Uh, let's move on to the economy now, and we'll start with a labour market prognosis made by the finance minister, Elizabeth Svantesson. Uh, Becky, can you give us the lowdown on this? What's she predicting? Um, well, it's not great news, really. Essentially, she said that there's a few challenges in store for the Swedish economy this year, particularly on the labour market. One of these is an increasing number of bankruptcies. But unlike during the pandemic, these are mainly occurring in uh, small businesses with only a few employees. And obviously, a knock-on effect of more bankruptcies is that more people become unemployed too. Okay, so unemployment rate expected to rise in 2024. In a more positive development, uh, inflation is on its way down, isn't it? What's the latest there and how is it likely to affect people? Yeah, so the new inflation figures for December were released this week. And yes, they've gone down, but not quite as much as experts had predicted. Sweden central bank, the Riksbank, has a 2% target based on CPIF inflation which is kind of a consumer price index inflation measure that's not affected by mortgage rate fluctuations. It fell from 36 to 2.3%, which is the lowest level since July 2021, and just 0.1 percentage points above what experts were forecasting, according to Bloomberg. This is important because we're getting close to the central bank's target, which it's meant to aim for in kind of setting financial policy. It's an important factor for the Riksbank when deciding when to start lowering Sweden's key interest rate or policy rate. And when the Riksbank lowers the key interest rate, interest rates we pay on our mortgages will follow. So to put it simply, the closer we get to the 2% CPIF inflation target, the sooner the Riksbank will lower the rate and the sooner we'll be paying less interest on our mortgages. Having said that, the new figures don't significantly affect forecasts, which predict that the Riksbank will cut the policy rate from its current 4% late spring or early summer. The fact that inflation fell a little bit less than expected, although only 0.1%, but still uh, reduces the likelihood of it lowering the rate even sooner than that. Okay, thanks for that roundup, Becky. And we'll add links in the show notes to related stories. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Back to politics now, and let's talk about a failed attempt this week by opposition members of parliament to force the Climate and Environment Minister Romina Pormaktari from the Liberal Party to step down in a vote of no confidence. Richard, can you give us some background on why the Green and Centre parties thought she wasn't doing her job properly and needed to go? Well, yes. In an article in the Express newspaper, the Green Party's new spokesman, Daniel Heldian, said that she lies and has broken the law. So he was very kind of clear 
that this and he and he stressed that it wasn't a, about a disagreement on climate policy it was that she had broken the climate law and been dishonest Sweden in 2017 passed this climate law and under that the government is required to have a policy all governments are required to have a policy that is aimed at reaching Sweden's climate goals which is basically to cut emissions by 63% from 1990 levels by 2030 and to hit sort of net zero by 2045 as part of that they need to present a climate report in every budget and then every 4 years they need to draw up what's called a climate policy action plan and the reason this is important is when the government came in and drastically reduced the amount of biofuel that needs to be blended in petrol and diesel, it admitted that this would increase the emissions of about 30 million tonnes by 2030, which is a lot. But when asked about that, Paul McTory has repeatedly said, just wait, wait until we present the climate plan. Then you'll see how we're going to fill in the gap. We can't have all our eggs in one basket. You know, we, we, we're going to have a lot of different measures which are going to make up this difference. But then in December, when the plan was finally presented, it had very, very little new in it at all. It was basically, oh, we'll have an investigation into this. And there were no sort of concrete policies that will reduce emissions now. And even the ideas the Liberals had reportedly been going to put in it were blocked at the last minute by the Sweden Democrats. So it just shows how toothless the climate law is because the government doesn't have a policy that is aimed at uh, reaching Sweden's climate goals. And, you know, there's nothing that anyone can do about it. So how did the vote go in the end? Well, they lost. They lost badly. And as I think they knew they would, but they lost maybe worse. They maybe hoped that the Social Democrats would have come behind them. But the Social Democrats abstained, uh, and that's because they are terrified of being seen as linked to the Green Party or indeed to anything that might increase prices at the pump or costs to consumers. I think also it's, I think the Social Democrats, this was kind of used against them a lot in the last mandate period. And I think maybe they want to be a little bit like, oh, this is a ridiculous political move that yeah. doesn't mean anything. Yeah, may maybe, maybe the Social Democrats want to sort of it discourage you know, people... Yeah, just doing, doing like random um, no confidence votes just because they don't agree with something. I think yeah. they said, Lena Hallengren said that like, we absolutely don't agree with the climate policy, um, but the way to get rid of that is not by just getting rid of a minister. Like That's not going to solve the problem kind of thing. I think it's a good point. And they only got 66 votes and I think they need 175. They need a majority, yeah. They need a majority, so not uh, to depose her. And if the Social Democrats had got in, I think they would have needed two MPs from the other side to back them, which is, again, pretty unlikely. They tend to be pretty loyal, but not totally unthinkable. Nicholas Aylott also had some thoughts on this. I asked him why the Greens and the Centre Party demanded a no-confidence vote in the Riksdag if they knew there was never really any chance of them forcing out Romina Pormaktari as climate minister. Uh, it was a, a gesture, of course. It was a, a political gesture designed to um, press on what is coming to be regarded by some as one of the, the current government's weakest uh, fronts, uh, and that is uh, its environmental policy. It's not surprising that the government's <coughs> environmental package has been criticised by parties of the, of the left, parties of, of the opposition, uh, which it has been quite, quite vociferously. Uh, perhaps more surprising is that criticism has been heard more recently by rather unexpected sources. A leading figure in a, a, in a, a centre-right think tank was quite critical about the government's environmental agenda. Uh, and then uh, a usually supportive newspaper in its editorial on Sunday was also very critical about the lack of ambition 
that the government seems to be showing in its environmental agenda. So it could absolutely be seen as uh, a weak point. Uh, if we want to, to look at individual politicians, uh, Sweden's environment minister, uh, who was subject to this vote of uh, no confidence today, she's extremely young, she's only 28, and she she looks about half that. And so that lack of experience might be another reason for uh, the opposition to see this particular policy area as a weak point in the government's uh, in the government's armory. The attractions of raising this issue up the political agenda by moving this vote of no confidence in Parliament were fairly obvious for the the Greens and and the left, perhaps particularly the Greens who have a new leader. One of their two leaders is is new anyway, mm-hmm. uh, and he wants to uh, enhance his his profile. He's perhaps not so well known among so many voters, and he. He will obviously see any advantage to, to get himself in the headlines and on news bulletins as, as, as an attractive one. Those reasons were pretty clear for the for the opposition. Whether the vote, as it turned out this morning, can be regarded as a successful move despite its inevitable defeat is now open to question, I think, mainly because the Social Democrats opted to abstain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this must have been a bit of a disappointment for the the, the left and the Greens and the Centre Party. I think the effect that it's had, as, as several commentators have already pointed out, is that it simply underlines the disunity of the left. You have a very diverse collection of parties on the left. You have the Centre Party, which used to belong to the centre-right opposition. Now you have the left party, and the Centre Party and the left party can't abide each other. You have the mm-hmm. Greens struggling in the polls and have, have a new leader, and, and he and the his, his now co-leader had a pretty frosty relationship previously, so there's questions here. And then all these parties have to relate to the big force in the opposition of Swedish politics, which is the Social Democrats. And could say that today's vote in Parliament simply underlined the difficulties of rallying uh, all four of these opposition parties behind a common position, even on something that should be one of their strong points and the opposition's weak points. Okay, it's time for coffee now. And Swedes are famously some of the biggest consumers of the black gold in the world. And we'll chat about a related news story in a minute. But while I had Nicholas on the line, I also asked him whether he was surprised by just how much coffee Swedes drank when he first moved to Sweden two decades ago. The short answer is yes. I remember one of my initial trips to Stockholm uh, I was I was doing my doctoral research and I'd arranged loads of interviews with with different people in different parts of, of Stockholm. And the day was really interesting, really useful. Uh, I learned an awful lot in these four or five meetings. And uh, I was offered a cup of coffee uh, at every one. Mm. And I can tell you, by the end of the final one, I had overdosed on caffeine in a very severe way. It was it was actually quite a, well. It was a very new and, and rather unpleasant experience. So that was a, a very dark introduction for me in in the degree to which Swedes do drink coffee. So um, even if I I had more than than most Swedes would have in a in a, in a single single day on on that particular day. Uh, so yeah, it was a bit of a shock. And just in general, has your intake increased since moving here? Do you think? Without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, I I don't I don't drink it constantly like uh, like some Swedes do, but uh, I certainly kick off the morning with a with a cup of coffee. Uh, and then follow it up with a couple of other fairly stiff ones, uh, in, at least in the first half of the day, in, in, a, in a manner that I would never have done in England before I moved to Sweden. That was Nicholas Aylott again. Now, one story 
that's caused a bit of a stir in Sweden recently is the revelation by the Kommunal Arbetaren newspaper that around a quarter of Swedish municipalities don't supply free coffee to their nursing staff or childcare workers. Becky, can you tell us more about the details of this and why people are so up in arms about it? I think it's a mix of a few different things, really. Free coffee is an easy way to make your employees feel valued. And public sector workers are kind of known for working in roles which are already understaffed and underfunded. Another aspect of it, according to this article in Kommunalarbetaren, is that it was much more common, at least at the regional level, for men or kind of white collar workers to have free coffee. So 94% of them had free coffee at work, while just 76% of underfattarskor or assistant nurses had free coffee. It's not immediately obvious if that's the same at the municipal level. They had figures for assistant nurses, white collar workers and preschool staff. Around 70% of them all got free coffee, but I don't think they had figures for a Shanstaman there. Um, my husband actually works for a local region, so I asked him about this. And they do have free coffee at work. But he said that his colleagues were all talking about this article and about how terrible it is. Uh, he basically said that they thought it was kind of stingy. It's like a basic thing that can't cost that much. And it shows how much people value or don't value their staff, especially when there's this difference in the groups that get it. It's also a case in a lot of these regions that they had free coffee at one point and then they've replaced it with like coffee you have to pay for. So I think this is like a strong contrast compared to how it's always been in a way. And it's a cultural thing. You know, it's such a basic need for most Swedes. It's on the same level as like making people pay for their own toilet paper or pens at work in a way. It's like it should just be provided. There's someone in, I think it was Orebro, uh, who commented on that article uh, in Kommunalarbeten, who said that they've always had to pay for coffee, but until recently in Hordmacka uh, was included. So that's like a bit of knäckebröd with a bit of cheese on top. Like that was included in your coffee. And now they've taken away this macka. So it costs the same, but you get something less. A very clear signal that there are cutbacks and that your like quality of life at work is getting worse. Uh, I think that's why people are so offended by it. Yeah. And there was another sort of similar story. There was a savings plan that came in for serious criticism in Stockholm. This was the Stockholm region, which runs healthcare, and that decided just before Christmas to stop providing baskets of fruit. Can you tell us how that played out? Well, you can imagine that people weren't very happy about that either. Again, they felt like their work wasn't being valued. Someone said that they weren't worth a banana. And another said that they were at the bottom of the food chain in region Stockholm, which I can imagine is a bit demotivating after, you know, maybe you've just finished a shift working overtime and haven't had a chance to eat yet. Also, I saw Aftonblad, it called it Banana Gate as well, which was quite funny. So the region had calculated that by no longer serving fruit, fika or catering, they'd save 23 million kroner a year. But the backlash was so intense, not just from people who'd be affected, but also healthcare workers in other regions and like members of the public, that they've done a U-turn and have decided they'll keep providing them. But again, I think it's more about like removing something obvious, which people feel makes them feel valued. I don't think anybody would be calling for the introduction of free coffee, fruit or fika, but when you take it away, especially at a time where they feel like they're working harder than ever, they really notice it. Yeah, this has been quite a big story in the papers in the last few days. You don't drink coffee, do you, Becky? Uh, do you find it's noticeable how prevalent it is in the culture here? Kind of. I don't know if that's just me being a tea drinking Brit or if it's something particularly Swedish. I lived in Denmark for a few years and in Austria for six months and they were pretty coffee mad there too. At least people acted a bit like I was an alien for not drinking coffee. One thing I have noticed is that Swedes were quite often and just drink coffee constantly, brewing a huge pot of filter coffee in the morning and then going in for top-ups throughout the day, which I think is probably the same in the rest of Scandinavia. Another thing is that decaf coffee is just not a thing here. My parents usually want decaf after dinner at restaurants and I was just after a while I just told them it's not worth asking in Sweden as they just keep getting confused looks from waiters. We're like, 
explain this concept decaf to me. I've never come across this before. <laughs> and like, this is the thing, like, I think in the UK, there's quite a lot of people that maybe stop drinking coffee after 12 or after three or something, and then they switch to decaf. But Swedes somehow can drink a strong cup of coffee at like 8pm and still sleep fine. I think they must be built differently. <laughs> How about you, Richard? There are rumours I've been hearing that you've reined in your habit. I have. I've given up the demon bean for the new year, which I actually do pretty much every single new year because I've got like a, a bit of a problematic relationship with caffeine, I'm afraid. This time I've promised my kids 5,000 kroner each if I fail. <laughs> so, hopefully, so hopefully that 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 I can't fail. You did uh, that when you went vegetarian. I did, I did, I did. It's it's the last time I'll do it, but it, it, it seems to work. But I, I do, I, I get, and I think it might be from living in Sweden, actually. It's just that constant av- availability. Like you can literally top it up. Up, constantly be sipping coffee every minute for the whole day and by by like three o'clock in the afternoon i'm just like <laughs> incapable of doing anything you just end up in a nasty state yeah a mix of being over caffeinated and yeah. also tired because you've stolen all your energy yeah exactly yeah. exactly so you're going to quit completely well i'm drinking tea it's like the methadone of the caffeine world <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i'm drinking strong yorkshire tea which i think is you can only go so wrong on tea mm. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think it is that people drink so much coffee in Sweden? It's the long dark winters, definitely. I mean, you need something to sort of crank yourself up so you can kind of get yourself out the door and down the street to work. You know, it's the same reason I think that Sweden has such strict alcohol laws because it's either that you need something just to kind of handle the, the greyness in the winter. And I suppose because of the historic crackdown on alcohol that there was at the end of at the turn of the last century, coffee plays the same role that alcohol would in a lot of other countries. So if you go to a birthday party, a wedding or a funeral, it tends to be based around coffee rather than around like glasses of wine and stuff. You know, there'll be big, big thermoses of coffee on every table. Mm. And so, fika, I guess. And, and, and of course, yeah, yeah. You don't go for an after work pint, exactly. You go for a fika with your office. So it's I like, mean, you do also go for an after work pint. Maybe. It's literally called an after work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. But yeah, it, it, I, think it's, I think it's the weather. I think it's the weather. And that's why if you look at the, the countries that are the kind of global coffee consumers, it's all basically Scandinavia, isn't it? It's like... It's like uh, all the cold, dark places. All the cold, dark places, yeah. Okay, let's end it there. I really need a coffee after all this talk. Uh, Thanks for tuning in to Sweden in Focus. Please leave a rating or review if you can. Our panellists today were Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back next week. Until then, take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus 
is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage. <laughs>